Okay, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Asian American and Asian Research Institute's final lecture series. Uh, my name is Anthony Wong, Program Coordinator Institute. Thank you for joining us in person and online for our book talk tonight on Shapes, Lines, and Light, uh, My Grandfather's American Journey, a new children's book by artist and author Katie Yamasaki on the life of her grandfather, uh, famed Japanese-American architect Minoru Yamasaki. Uh, Katie has previously presented at the Institute in spring 2011 uh, on visual dialogues, public art, and social transformation about her public art projects covering the topics of Japanese incarceration to the militarization of inner city youth. Uh, that video is actually on our website and available to view after this talk uh, over the weekend. Uh, Katie Yamasaki is a muralist, children's book artist, and a teaching artist at the Center for Fiction in Brooklyn. Uh, she has traveled widely, painting over 80 murals with diverse communities around the world that explore local issues of identity and social justice. Uh, her children's book work focuses on similar themes of social justice and stories from underrepresented communities. Uh, her murals take a participatory approach, working with local community members to find ways to sh best share the stories they want to tell. Uh, in, in addition to tonight's book, Shapes, Lines, and Light, which is available for purchase after this talk uh, for $12, we take credit cards and you have to have exact cash if you want to pay with cash. Uh, she'll autograph copies for you. Uh, in addition to that book, which just re was recently published, and you went on a big book tour recently, right? From the West Coast, now back to the East Coast. Uh, Katie's other books include When the Cousins Came and Fish for Jimmy. Uh, recounting personal family stories about World War II incarceration camps and growing up in a multiracial family. Uh, she has also co-authored Everything Naomi Loved with Ian Lendler, dealing with the topic of gentrification. Uh, Katie is currently in the early phases of multi-year residency with the Women and Justice Project in partnership with justice organizations around the city to build a campaign of legislative reform and culture change around issues of gender justice and mass incarceration of women. Uh, you can learn more about Katie's work on her website, katieyamasaki.com, or you can join, follow her right now on Instagram. I'll let you, if you pull out your phone right now, uh, at Katie Yamasaki. And with that, please welcome Katie Yamasaki. Um, well, thank you all for coming out. Again, I'm really happy to be here. I've been talking about this book a lot, but it's nice to kind of be um, among adults. It's nice to be back at the Institute. When I think back to 2011, I wonder what was I even talking about, but I, but that was pretty concise. So um, I'm going to go ahead and start um, talking about this latest book. Let's see. You know, I grew up north of Detroit in a factory town in the 1980s, and I grew up kind of knowing that my grandfather was this famous architect. And I was always really curious about him and kind of curious about his legacy. Um, what I didn't know growing up was kind of what about his background and what was it to be Japanese, Japanese American in the early 1900s in this country. That's him on the right, his brother on the left. They were born in Seattle. He was born in 1912. And, you know, he became well-known and well-regarded for these kind of beautiful structures that he built in the 1950s and 60s that had these feelings of like serenity, surprise, and delight. Those were his kind of three, kind of some of the buildings that we knew about. But what we really knew about and what kind of the world constantly reminded us about was that he was the architect of the World Trade Center. So growing up in Michigan at that time in the 1980s, um, people would say things to us in our class like, was your grandfather a kamikaze pilot? It was a very um, anti-Japanese, specifically anti-Japanese place to live at that time because of the auto industry. 
So where we were was a town that was built around a GM factory. And pretty much everybody at our elementary school outside of our family worked, their family worked at the GM factory. So, um, you know, when I was six years old, Vincent, Chin, somebody named Vincent Chin was murdered because they thought he was Japanese. He was murdered at a bar by some um, auto workers. But that was kind of the climate. So there was this kind of confusing um, narrative between your grandfather was this famous architect in a town where there weren't a lot of famous people, but also it was your gra grandpa a kamikaze pilot. Um, we hate Japanese. Somebody once told me in a seventh grade discussion, it's just the way I was raised, but I hate Japanese people. You know, and you kind of hear, would hear things like that. And there would be bumper stickers on people's cars that would say things like Jap crap um, with like a picture of Calvin from Calvin and Hobbes peen on the words Jap crap. And, um, but it was confusing as you can imagine for a young reader like myself. Um, because what I wondered was, how is it that my grandfather is really famous, you know, and he's done these important things. But number one, why are there no um, books in my library? You know, I was a ravenous, self-identified ravenous reader. <laughs> I, they, you could choose which sign you wanted. I picked ravenous reader. But there were no books, not only about my grandfather, but about anybody with any kind of Asian face with any brown skin. There was a Martin Luther King book and a Rosa Parks book. But besides that, it was really just if there were biographies, there were biographies with white protagonists or uh, about white people. And it was confusing. So I kind of grew up wanting to explore his story and explore his legacy. And I'm going to share it with you. And we obviously don't have any young readers with us today, youngish. <laughs> um, but we, uh, I'm going to share kind of some of the thoughts that I um, encourage the young readers to think about whenever I go through this story. Okay. Shapes, Lines, and Light, My Grandfather's American Journey. Old people, it turns out, were not always old, not even grandparents. I learned that about my grandfather, Minoru. He was an architect, and I called him Grandpa. My grandma called him Tinky. Some people called him Min, and the world called him Yama. Before he was my grandpa, he was a kid, a teenager even, a young man trying to find his way through the world. A lot of the world happened to him, and he happened to a lot of the world. When Yama was young, he noticed a feeling in his chest that changed from space to space. In his rickety home, in his crowded neighborhood, and with his mother, father, and brother, he felt welcome. He felt curious and open he felt seen. Usually I ask the young readers in the in the school visits that I do to identify a place where they have those feelings. And a lot of kids will identify their home or identify their school. But there were other spaces, buildings that closed the open place in his heart, spaces that said, you are not welcome here, not your kind. I also ask them about the, this kind of space because when my grandfather was um, growing up, if he wanted to go swimming in a public pool in Seattle on a hot day, he couldn't. Japanese Americans, Japanese were not allowed in the public pools. They could go to the YMCA, but not the public pools. If they wanted to go to the movies, they couldn't sit in the lower level. They would have to sit up in the balcony, even if the lower level was completely empty. So um, when I ask kids this question, often the assembly will turn into kind of like a group therapy session because so many kids will have so many thoughts on this. You know, kids will say, well, my mom is in hijab. So when we go into places, I don't really feel welcome. 
or, you know, I'm a boy who paints my nails. And when I go to places, I don't really feel welcome. And it's pretty moving to kind of hear about how young people feel and the spaces that they inhabit. Perhaps you will stock shoes for a store like your father, but there was a quiet voice inside Yama. My father is brilliant. Perhaps you will sweep factory floors on weekends like your father. The quiet voice spoke again. My father works hard. Perhaps architecture is too far reach for someone like you. Yama listened to the quiet voice. You have no idea how far I can reach. Yama went instead to spaces where he felt welcome. Forests deep with evergreen, streams that sang him a calming song, sunlight glinting off rocks, spaces of light and freedom ignited his imagination. I, asked, I also ask my young readers, where do you go for inspiration? Because for him, this was kind of, you know, Seattle was full of this kind of still very vibrant nature when he was growing up. And one of the kids at my first presentation said, I go to Paris. <laughs> That's so nice. <laughs> he worked harder than everyone else, swallowing the sharp ache that came from not being seen. Faces like his in places like this, he listened to that quiet voice inside. I will go to college and build my life. But there was no money. Only freezing cold, far away north, way north Alaska. Sweeping vistas, glittering waters. And dark canneries that reeked of rotten fish. No fresh air, no light, no rest working 18-hour days. So many Nisei like him those born in America to parents who had come from Japan. Is this where they think we belong? I am building, I am saving. Every summer, Yama went to Alaska and paid his way through college. And with this image, um, at that time, there was no work available for Japanese Americans, um, at least in Seattle. When I was just in Seattle this past weekend, I asked a very full auditorium at the Seattle Public Library, how many people had family who worked also at the salmon canneries and probably a quarter of the people in the audience raised their hand. It was a big place for the Japanese American and the Filipino workers who couldn't get hired anywhere else. But if you look at his biography, um, his autobiography, A Life in Architecture, he spent about as much time talking about his time working at the salmon canneries as he did talking about his architecture. It was, it left such an impression. It was dangerous, it was filthy, the conditions were criminal. Yama studied for many years. He stayed at the top of his class, beautiful drawings, ideas like gardens growing in his mind. He was something special. So he went to the University of Washington and pursued architecture. Every year um, at the college, they would give a Fulbright scholarship to the top graduate graduates of in the architecture program to study at the Society of Beaux Arts in Paris. Um, the year he was graduating, and he was known to be like the top architecture student that the school had ever seen, but they canceled the scholarship that year so that they wouldn't have to give it to him. And that, in a kind of twist, his father took a trip to Japan that they really couldn't afford, um, which kind of inspired him in terms of Japanese architecture. It was his first time going to Japan, his first exposure to Japanese architecture and kind of the interplay between the inside and the outside world. But when it was time to get a job, America was in the middle of the Great Depression. Doors slammed, not hiring, especially eyes like yours, names like yours, faces like yours. 
And when he did get a job designing buildings, the world still told him, we do not trust your Japanese name, your Japanese face. Have you ever tasted something bitter in your mouth? That's how they said Japanese. He kept working harder than anyone else. He married a pianist named Haruko. The soulful sound of her music found its way into his work. Just after they wed, war began. Japanese families on the west coast of the United States lost everything. They were sent to desert prisons. Yama and Taruko's tiny New York City apartment overflowed with family escaping. So our grandparents were married December 5th, 1941, and Pearl Harbor was December 7th, 1941. She was a, on a Fulbright scholarship to Juilliard um, for graduate school to become a concert pianist. But the night of Pearl Harbor, her father, who was part owner of a produce market, was arrested by the FBI and sent to a military prison because they suspected that because he was part owner of a produce market that he must be some kind of spy, which is as crazy as it sounds. <laughs> um, but I think the one thing that people may not think about a lot who, um, who haven't spent a lot of time thinking about the camps and the mass incarceration of the Japanese Americans was the economic devastation to the community. So their whole family's um, income which was the produce market, was gone. Her sister and her brother both had to drop out of school. She had to drop out of school. And all of a sudden, our grandfather was the main working person in the family. And um, his bosses very assertively were able to get his parents from Seattle like the week before the war started on a train out to New York City. So they missed the um, the incarceration, which was not not a common story. The FBI said, you are Japanese, suspicious. The police said, you are Japanese, show us your identification. The neighbor said, you are Japanese, you could be a spy. I was born in Seattle. I am building my life just like you. Every bitter sound made a brick. Each brick built a stronger foundation. He added lines. He didn't want to feel the way they were trying to make him feel. He made shapes. He brought in light. So his first job as an architect when he was in New York was um, designing a naval base in upstate New York, Sam Samson Naval Base. And as he was working on it, he was the chief designer. He would go to visit it. And one time, I think maybe the first time he was going to visit it as it was under construction, he was sent away. He was turned away at the gates by the military police who also thought he was a spy. So it was kind of all around. He lived not far from here. He was living on the Upper East Side with his brother, my grandmother and our great uncle in a one bedroom. Eventually they moved to Michigan. He had a family, a Japanese American family that needed a place to live. First they were turned away again and again, but then they found a home, an old farmhouse in a town without red lines and cruel rules. They built and they grew. When they first moved to Michigan, he had at that time kind of a certain amount of success. And so he was able to get a home in one of the nicer suburbs like Bloomfield Hills or Gross Point, but uh, they were redlined out of all of those towns. So they ended up buying a farmhouse in Troy, Michigan. At his office, Yama worked and wondered, how can I make a space of light with a feeling of open doors and air that breathes? Everyone is welcome here. Shapes combined with lines, combined with nature's light, serenity, surprise, delight. Yama became his own boss signed his own drawings, made buildings where people worked in harmony, where people worked in peace. For many years, he worked long, hard hours, too long, too hard, 
He worked until his body said, rest now. So he traveled and he marveled. Soar, said the quiet voice inside at his, as his spirit lifted into the arcs of the Alhambra. Peace like this, it said as he beheld sun glinting on still water and paths of smooth round stones at the Katsura Palace. Inspired, Yama returned to fill his office with big thinkers from around the world. Architects who worked side by side, people from many countries called Yama asking him to design their buildings. The spaces he built connected to the humanity of everyday people. Workplaces, learning spaces, travel hubs, and sacred spots to gather were filled with serenity, surprise, and delight. His work grew, his name grew, the pressure upon him that grew too. He made mistakes and had regrets that would take time to fully understand. People he worked with didn't always agree or share his vision. Things didn't always work out the way he planned. So this is um, the Pruitt-Igo apartment complex in St. Louis, Missouri. And this was, along with the World Trade Center, probably the project that he was most known for, but also kind of infamously known for. So in the architecture world, a lot of people would say things like, oh, Yamasaki, um, World Trade Center, Pruitt-Igo, that's a tough legacy. And when I was preparing to kind of make this book, I would think like, but he designed more than 200 buildings, you know, but this one, as, as well as the World Trade Center, was very publicly exploded on national television for different reasons. And it was a very troubled project for a lot of reasons that were actually outside of his control, but he was very much scapegoated for the disaster of this project. Um, if you wanted to learn more about it, I would recommend uh, Nobody by Mark Lamont Hill or um, Sand Future by Justin Beale, which kind of eloquently talks about how a lot of people who were in this housing um, project ended up in Ferguson, uh, and it's all kind of related to the uprising there. Um, but one thing about this page that I like to talk about is the reviews, because a lot of the reviews of his work would talk about, they would start out by talking about his body and his diminutive stature and his tiny frame and his decorative um, kind of shapes in his buildings kind of in an effort to emasculate him and diminish his work, um, which is a pretty common narrative of the Asian, Asian American man. So reading those reviews is tough, but it, it really took a toll on him over time. But so often Yama found his way, bringing the outside world in, letting the sun shine through ceilings, illuminating shapes, the reflecting water of a still pool quieting a busy mind, so one might sit in peace. His shapes, lines, and light brought to so many serenity, surprise, and delight. And there was home, a home that was made of shapes and lines and light, a home filled with Ruruko's music, a home that was filled with children and then grandchildren. So I'm this one. My sister, who's right there, is the one with the blocks on the floor with the brontosaurus t-shirt. Many years later, a terrible thing happened. But he had died years before. If he had been alive, his heart would have broken into one million pieces, not for the buildings, but for all the people who went to work there in peace, for all their families, and for what happened afterward. I lived there then in New York City, and it made me wonder, what do buildings stand upon? There is the earth, the soil, the concrete, the steel beams. There are our stories. 
and the feeling we have and the space that is made from shapes and lines and light. This was not the first time I um, did a book about my grandfather. My first book about my grandfather was when I was in third grade. You know, I was very interested in him as this figure. And basically what we knew was your grandpa designed the World Trade Center. That was kind of all we knew. So I took it upon myself to interview him, but I still didn't get much depth. You know, much depth. I kind of, um, you know, was interested in the things that a kid might ask. <laughs> what is your favorite color? And then putting my own editorializing it that white is not a color, actually. <laughs> um, um, but what I didn't really wrap my mind around was kind of why somebody growing up in the world that he grew up in, the time that he grew up in, the spaces that he was in, would grow up to want to make these very unusual spaces with a focus on the human experience inside of those spaces, with a focus on the emotional experience. Um, because a lot of these buildings, you know, as a young architect who did not go to an Ivy League school, architecture was a very elite, very white institution with, mo and it still is, but most people who are designing at that time had gone to Ivy League schools. And he was somebody from a public university, from an immigrant family, and he was getting people and developers to invest in the emotional experience of being in a space. You know, those arches, which are very iconic in Seattle, they are not serving a function of four walls and a roof. But somehow he managed to kind of convince people of the emotion, the emotional value of being in a space. And, you know, I kind of wondered, how did he get there from this upbringing? You know, when he was born, they didn't have running water in their house. He lived on what was called the initial, the original skid row in um, Seattle. So at the top of their hill, their house with their tenement was kind of wedged on the top. And he said at any time, like the house felt like it would just slide down the hill with all of the logs that were being logged and also sliding down the hill. But, um, you know, no indoor plumbing, but he was surrounded by this rich Japanese American community of Seattle of that time. This is called the Nihonmachi, which is the Japan town. So on the one hand, the outside world outside of this community was kind of saying your life really doesn't have much value, but within his community, there were people who looked like him, people who looked like his parents and spoke their language. And so I think that there was kind of like this dueling, you know, I'm curious about his inside voice. And this is something that comes up in the book and that I encourage the young reader to think about is like, what is the voice inside of your mind saying to you when the world might be saying your life doesn't have much value? What are you saying to yourself? And how do you kind of win that battle when like, you want to get a job because you want to go to college, but nobody will give you work. So you have to go to Alaska to work in these inhumane conditions. And when you graduate and first get work as an architect and want to kind of make these spaces, the buildings that are being made for you and your people look like this. You know, and you think about how did the outside world want the Japanese and Japanese American community to feel versus what he was trying to do. And what a what I imagine what a battle this is. You know, this was this was the climate of the time. And as breathtaking as this is, it's also kind of still happening today all around us. You know, and when we have these conversations with, um, you know, on school visits, looking at these pictures, these are not even human depictions, right? Like th that's green skin, you know, and this is, um, you know, it's kind of how to be afraid. And when we look at like the Asian American experience right now today and think about how um, Asians are so often kind of swept into a single narrative, you know, the model minority or kind of like um, there's no distinction from one Asian to another. When you think about how many people it is, I was thinking 
just the name of this institute, Asian and Asian American Research Institute, how many people that is, the Asians and Asians Americans, you know, like, so, um, but the dehumanization kind of was so, um, it was so obvious at that time. And, you know, he found a way to kind of, I think he made it his mission to be seen and he made it his mission to kind of build these spaces. And what he was kind of known for was building at a human scale, using forms from nature, using forms that were inspired a lot from like Middle Eastern architecture, some European cathedrals, and then a lot of inspiration from the interplay between um, the inside and the outside world like they have in traditional Japanese architecture. Um, and creating spaces where everyday people, you know, people who are traveling, people who are going to work, this is a medical files office in Lansing, Michigan. You know, it's not like, this is Princeton, so that's one thing, but this is like, <laughs> you know, this is the St. Louis airport. So for everyday people to have these experiences, um, but the World Trade Center was so central to the narrative about him that I felt like in the beginning, when I started to explore his biography, which was in the early 2000s, I was also very focused on that because I felt like, well, this is what people want to read about. This is what people want to know about. But the more I kind of thought about it and read about him and then had conversations with people in our family about him, the more I kind of was thinking, well, what I really want to think about is everything else except the World Trade Center. You know, what happened at 9-11 was we watched the World Trade Center become a piece of pro-war propaganda, you know, for a war that nobody in our family believed in. And so that was pretty devastating, you know, to see these towers that we used to think like when I was a kid, oh, it's really cool. Our grandpa designed that, you know, and then you see them with a sign about going to war in Iraq. It doesn't make any sense, you know, so you start thinking about what symbols are when you build them and how to be kind of responsible for them. So I kind of went to the basics of the essence of his work. You know, I worked, so I always find a model. This is my friend Marcus. He's been modeled for several of my books, but um, he's more muscular than my grandfather was, but we're not, we don't need to talk about anybody's body. So, <laughs> um, but I needed to find a way to um, marry his way of working with mine. I am not an architect. We grew up going weekends to their architecture firm because our dad worked there. And we would go on Sundays and it would be full of people and they would say, oh, do you want to be an architect when you grow up? And like, no, I don't know what this is, but I know that my friends are not at their at the office right now on a Sunday. But um, so I'm more of a painter and I enjoy collage as well. So I kind of had to figure out how I would deal with the intricacies of his work because I also don't really work digitally. So um, so I worked in collage and kind of work to cut out these forms and try to get them integrated into each illustration, kind of imagine the surreal nature of how he might have seen the world and how he might have looked at a forest, you know, and imagine kind of experience the arches of a tree or how he might have looked at like the skeleton of a deer or this, or this, the frame of like a beehive. Um, so they kind of went up one by one at the studio. This is a very, large children's book, large picture book. It's about 10 pages longer than usual, which you feel when you're reading it to a bunch of first graders. It's really more for older kids. But, you know, I kind of would just take it from the drawings through paintings with acrylic wash and then add in the add in the collage. But, you know, my goal was to kind of bring in the what it is to feel a certain way in a space. 
because that was kind of what he most cared about. And that was at a time when people were designing buildings to kind of awe and intimidate and overwhelm and overpower. He was trying to design buildings that would inspire. And a lot of the time when I'm doing these kind of author visits, kids will ask me, um, how did he inspire me and my work? And for a very long time, like my whole life, I kind of said, I don't want to be an artist for my whole early life. I said, I don't want to be an artist because it felt like too much pressure. You know, our grandfather was who he was. Our grandmother was like this classically trained concert pianist. Our uncle won the Pulitzer Prize for documentary photography. It felt like too high a bar. Um, but what I kind of have come to realize is that in some way, the experience of um, being seen in a space is something that I feel like I share with him. What he cared about was creating these spaces where people could feel fully human. And in a lot of ways, that's kind of what I've devoted my work to as well. It turns out differently a lot of the time. I work in a lot of kind of correctional facilities and prisons. And for example, this project was with a group of teenage boys outside of Philadelphia. And this was right after Trayvon Martin was murdered. And so they wanted to kind of have a voice in their community and they wanted to kind of speak up and say who they were in their own words. So the first thing we did when we were planning this mural was have them describe themselves and describe who they are in the world, how they see themselves. So you can see in the pink bubble, this 16 year old he wrote, good at all sports, DJ, good listener, gets good grades, compassionate, humble, ladies man, responsible, great kisser, you know, all the kind-hearted, peaceful, all of these wonderful things for a 16-year-old to be, you know. And we said, now when you're walking down the street in your community and somebody sees you, how do, how do you think they see you? How do they experience you? Dumb, ugly, not going to be anything, crazy, scary, bully, killer. And the difference between those two things are so violent and so consequential that it kind of, you know, well, number one, it kind of made this mural feel a little bit more urgent because, you know, these, we've all been watching teenage boys get killed on the street um, for these same misunderstandings, but we wanted to give them a space where they could feel fully seen in their community. So they actually painted this mural on those clocks and then we installed it in their community. And we kind of wanted to ask the question, well, so we said, I am in their words. And then all of these words, smart, kind-hearted, caring, loving, hardworking, but also there's a question is he? Is he smart? Is he compassionate? Is he peaceful? Just to kind of challenge the viewer, if you're wondering this, you might want to think about that. Um, and one of the reasons I think that that type of work has drawn me in so much is because I think about our own family. You know, this is our grandmother's family. They came from Okinawa to Los Angeles in the early 1900s. Our grandmother's all the way on the right. And then that's our grandfather's family that immigrated from, from Tokyo, the Tokyo area to um, Seattle. And I think about like the words that I would associate with our family, you know, hardworking, creative, loving, devoted, adventurous. And then like the words that society at that time, you know, and even still today, you know, if you were to write a list of words that has been associated with the Asian community in the last three years, but also the last 100 years, spy, traitor, enemy, animal-like, dangerous, menacing. So what I've been thinking about a lot when I've been taking this, this book around is what are we looking for? What are these kind of messages that we're getting and where are they, where are, where are they coming from? So this is stuff that came out in magazines like Time Magazine. And yeah, in the, um, in the 1940s, how to tell Jap, how to tell Japs from the Chinese, because the Chinese were our allies and the Japanese were not. And they're physical descriptions. You know, and when we, when I've talked about this with kids, they kind of are asking, you know, well, what is it? What is it? And the whole point is that it is 
just fabrication, complete fabrication to create an enemy, you know? And then it's not like even describing like body types, body types, skin colors, like the Japanese are jaundiced yellow where, well, the Chinese have like a golden glow and it would be funny if it wasn't so horrific. Right. And um, so it's interesting to think about where we see these types of things show up today. Um, you know, because when I think about our family, especially at that time, just kind of starting out, these two things have nothing to do with each other. Um, I think a lot of the time our grandfather spent much of his life proving his worth and proving his place and really wanting to be seen. He had decided as a young man that he would be seen and that he would leave a mark, but it came at a cost. You know, it came at a physical cost. It came at an emotional cost. You can't work that much without it impacting all the people around you in your immediate circle. And he definitely left a kind of wonderful impact on the physical world. But I, what I wish is that he didn't feel like he needed to prove himself. You know, you wonder, I, I sometimes wonder if he had been born in a place that said, your life has inherent value for the simple fact of your existence, how many buildings would he have designed? Probably not quite as many, but that would have been okay, you know? So when we kind of, when I look at this path and with this book and with my own work, um, I'm thinking a lot about these spaces and how we kind of create a world where people feel from the very beginning that inherent worth and inherent value in their own lives. This is at a school. This is my most recent mural that was painted with these two wonderful people. Um, but this mural was painted at a public school for 100% of the kids have um, special needs, significant special needs, and 100% of them are living at or below the poverty line. This is in downtown Brooklyn. And the kids wanted to show that they are brave. This is a post-COVID kind of, if we're in post, whatever we want to call this time. This was painted earlier, <laughs> what, like last year. Um, they wanted to show that they're brave. And the staff wanted to show that they were loyal and protective. So conveniently, their school mascot was a lion, but also what a perfect symbol. And then we also wanted to show the kids kind of in their full humanity, doing all of the things, taking away that idea of a single story that, oh, you have special needs, so this is your whole story, or oh, you're poor, so this is your whole story. They wanted to show you know, we did a lot of workshops where they kind of showed all of the things that they love doing. And then we put them on a ground that's moving because I think one of the things that was impressed upon us by the staff and by the families of the kids was how challenging the constantly changing world of like 2020 to 2022 has been, you know, where you are constantly adapting every single day to the world um, and it's constant changes and still working to provide a stable place for these kids. Um, because I think, and this is, this is our daughter. I think that, um, at the end of the day, whether it's with this book or with any of these murals, what I hope most is to kind of be creating a space, a place where people feel most seen and most able to kind of have expansive choices and live an expansive life. And, you know, this book has been incredible speculation in some ways because our grandfather died when I was 10, when Mariko was 12. And so we didn't get to know him as an adult. You know, we know his stories. We know his stories passed on from our father, from our aunt and uncle, but we don't, we've never had an adult conversation. But what I believe is that he would want kids to start from a place of understanding and feeling the inherent value of their own life. So that's what I hope 
they they get from this. I've been encouraging each young reader to kind of examine their own family background, ask the questions of their own grandparents, because your grandfather or grandmother doesn't need to have been a concert pianist or designed the World Trade Center. They just need to have a story that they can tell you about their life. And um, yeah, I hope that more kids will take this story as an invitation to investigate their own family matters. And I also hope that the story will challenge us all to engage with some of these same issues in the world around us right now. So thank you all so much. Yes. Uh, did, did your grandfather have any association with IMK and his family? He did. In fact, um, the one of the earliest buildings I showed in the slideshow, he um, he knew Isamu Noguchi. I don't know if he knew IMP well, but he definitely did a building um, in Japan. Let me find it. That was um, a Shinto shrine. I went there once, actually. It was this shrine. It's in the Shiga Prefecture in Japan. And it's they cut off the top of the mountain so that the congregants could have a 360-degree view um, well in their service. And Next to, he did the main temple, but there is a large bell tower designed by IMP and a walking path designed by Noguchi. So when I went there, it was like, they were very interested that like, that I was related to him. So they had set up this whole thing. And when I was walking down the Noguchi path towards the IMP bell tower en route to the shrine, they were playing America the Beautiful on the bell tower. <laughs> it was a very, somebody was holding an umbrella over my head so I wouldn't get a tan. It was a very unusual experience <laughs> but but he did know them um i think noguchi he and noguchi in particular walked in similar circles when they were living in new york city in the 1940s yeah but your grandfather never went to the he did not because he was here he, and voluntarily yeah yeah he put himself in and then and then got out what about Ansel adams? well ansel adams wasn't incarcerated but oh yeah oh oh did he know him i don't know I don't know. I mean, those pictures are wonderful, though, that he took, but I'm not sure if they had any relationship. It does seem like a lot of artists at that time had a lot of overlap. Yeah. The um, story with Noguchi was that my grandmother's sister was courted by Noguchi. Apparently, he courted many people, but it was courted by Noguchi and um, and that she chose our great uncle Jim was a great source of pride for our great uncle Jim. <laughs> Yeah, he was dating Frida. Oh, really? Yes. <laughs> he had great taste, I guess. <laughs> yeah, Anthony? To make this book, you know, I started working on this book when I was in graduate school, I think. Well, maybe a little bit after. Our um, graduate school was the week, 9-11 was our second day of classes. So right when that happened, you know, and I was in an MFA illustration program. So people, and we all wanted to make books, you know, make children's books. And people would say, oh, you know, but getting published is real, really challenging. So they would say, oh, Katie, you know, if you do a book about your grandfather now, it'll for sure get published. But I thought that was so gross. So, um, so, but I also wanted to really distance his story from 9-11 as much as possible, because as things unfolded and we saw how the buildings were being used and also just that the buildings were not a real representation of what he was trying to do in architecture. It certainly had elements of it. You know, he wanted to impart serenity, surprise and delight. That was kind of like his guiding principle. And there was some of that with the World Trade Center. But um, 
it was so, uh, there was such a competition to make books around, in and around and about 9-11. What's the angle? Everybody kind of wanted a special angle, and I just didn't want to engage in that at all. So I started working on his story a little bit more in like 2006 or seven, and but I was still central. I, I was kind of putting World Trade Center at this in the middle as well, because that was what I most knew him for. So then periodically from then until maybe 2018, 2019, I kind of would just dive in and dive out and just hearing family stories about what he really cared about um, in terms of creating spaces became more and more interesting, especially as the world has kind of unfolded as it has. While I was working on the book, I worked on it mostly in 2020 and 2021. And it was very uh, triggering. Just the present day world of 2020 and 2021 was so triggering in terms of his story because it felt like this Groundhog's Day. You know, I'm working on something that he experienced being profiled by the FBI or being abused or harassed by neighbors and then hearing about things happening all the time in, in our community was devastating. But it also felt like, well, this is unfortunately still relevant. You know, that's how I felt about um you know, I feel like with all my books, I wish that they weren't relevant. <laughs> I'm happy that people want to read them, but I wish Fish for Jimmy wasn't relevant. It's about the, you know, mass incarceration of the Japanese and the gentrification book. You know, I wish that none of them <laughs> needed to be in the world, but here we are. Yes. Um, it seems interesting with all your projects, this is obviously very personal, but with the mural, there's this huge component of facilitating the conversation with the community or with individuals that are participating in the creation of murals. That's like a whole other skill set. Outside of the fact that you're obviously an illustrator and muralist, where, I mean, that, you know, where have you gotten that from to then yeah. be able to transform and create the stories of other individuals into these murals? You know, I think, um, thanks for that, by the way, but I think that um, mostly I, you know, I started out as a teacher. I worked um, 14 years as a teacher, two years as a full-time teacher, 12 years as a part-time teacher in public schools in Detroit and New York City. And I think that those facilitation skills have served me well because I know mostly I've worked with middle school, but it's kind of all the same and it's kind of using art as a way for people to either express something or tell a story. And so with the murals, outside of the one at the Japanese American National Museum that I showed, they're mostly just, the mural is the way for a community to tell a story. And then, so my job is to kind of like do the workshops that will hopefully get at the heart of whatever story the community wants to tell and figure out like a cohesive way um, to put it all together. Um, but it all feels like storytelling, you know? So this one, this is really personal. So that's what's really different. But, you know, I think that, there are so many, um, you know, I think what bothers me is when people ask me like, oh, your work is like, or they'll, they'll say your work is like voice for the voiceless and nobody is voiceless, you know, because not everybody has a platform. But so I think that what I try to do is let my work be a platform in as many ways as I can. And um, especially for people who have experienced some of the same things my grandfather experienced with people who are incarcerated or people who are living in communities where they don't have a way to tell their story. Yeah, so at these um, events, like with, with kids, it's what's amazing is just kind of what they share then about their grandparents. And even a teacher came up to me at the end of an event at um, Brooklyn Public Library, and she was 
weeping and she was saying, you know, my dad passed away recently and he, when he was one week away from dying, he finally told our family about his experience in the Vietnam War, you know, and it was very moving. And, you know, what I hope is that just whatever people's form is that they'll find a way to tell the story because what we see in the world around us is that stories can disappear. When we were in, um, when I was in middle school, I had a experience where the, on December 7th, anniversary of Pearl Harbor, the teacher said, oh, Katie, you're Japanese, why don't you tell the class what happened today in history? And so I said, okay, it's terrible. But I, um, I told the story of our family and how our great grandfather was arrested that night and sent to a military prison because he was part owner of a produce market and how our grandfather, grandmother's entire family was incarcerated. And um, when I finished telling the story, our teacher said, that never happened. I said, yes, it did. He said, no, it didn't. Yes, it did. And we went back and forth for a while, but um, it was this feeling of like, wow, people's stories can be erased just like this, you know? And so that was, um, I think that that kind of planted a little seed. You know, I didn't know I wanted to do children's books till I was in my twenties, but um, but that planted a seed about the power of stories and how, if that is happening to me, it must be happening to so many other people. Their stories being kind of denied. Thanks for that. Thank you all so much for coming out in the freezing weather. And um, this is, these are, you're selling them for $12? That is a bargain. So it's like $10 less than if you buy it on Amazon. So um, yeah, um, I will be signing books if anybody wants to get one. Uh, so thanks again to Katie for a wonderful presentation. Uh, you can purchase Shapes, Lines, and Light online from bookshop.org for those folks at home uh, for the discounted price of 2041. But you, you know, if you came here, you could have bought it for $12. <laughs> so uh, the link is available on her talk webpage. So please do visit that. And with that, have a good evening. Remember to be upstander if you see a fellow person in need and have a good weekend.